Amen. You can be seated. If you have a way to see God's Word this morning, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This morning I'm going to be speaking on something that I've spoken on many times, but this morning I want to kind of look at it from a little different lens. And as it relates really to this whole idea of the study that we're doing, experiencing God. Now I think many of you already know that we're in Unit 10 or Week 10 of Experiencing God. Uh, we're almost getting there. We're almost in the home stretch. We're actually in the home stretch. Now we're almost near the end. And I do hope that it's been a blessing to you. I know this is uh, probably my fourth time through it. Three times I did about 20-some years ago. And uh, it's been a great reminder of, of what God can do and wants to do. And I don't know. It's just been a great study so far. And so what I want to do this morning, uh, and, and as you know, this sermon is intended to kick off the next unit, and so that's my goal, is to come alongside of that unit and, and kind of kick it off, especially those thoughts as it relates to where the unit is taking you. So we have actually, last week, we actually completed the outline of experiencing God. And of course, we know, number one, God is always at work around you. Number two, God pursues a love relationship with you that's real and personal. Thirdly, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. And then, of course, the fourth, God speaks through the Holy Spirit, his word, prayer, and circumstances to reveal his purposes and his ways. Fifthly, God's invitation many times leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action to proceed Number six, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. When the crisis comes, it normally demands adjustments. And from those adjustments comes the obedience that we can experience God through. So you come to know God by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. Now the study over the next three weeks, two of the weeks will we'll focus more on how we as a church can experience God together. Uh, and then at the very end, it'll talk about your life on a daily basis as it relates to your personal devotion. So how do we do this together? How do we as a church experience God together? Look at the introduction there. These are excerpts from the Experiencing God book. When a church allows God's presence and activity to be expressed, a watching world will be drawn to him. So many times I think the church misses out on the fact that if we will just follow the heart of God, God places a vision in front of us, or God places us a, a purpose or something for us to accomplish. As we move towards that, and as we begin to see his hand begin to move, the world will look in, and they will watch, and they will glorify him. That's what we're going to study this week, basically. Secondly, a church needs to hear the whole counsel of God through his word, prayer, and circumstances. It's important that we have an accurate view of God, what his purposes are, his ways, but especially as a church family, it's important that we come with agreement of doctrine to move forward in unity. And then thirdly, a church must learn to function as a body with Christ as the head if it expects to experience, experience God. Now, the thing that we need to understand is that we are the body of Christ. I want you to think about it. You make up the body of Christ. If you've joined us here as a church and you're here with us accomplishing the ministry and the mission that God's called us to accomplish, then guess what? He placed you here to bring that about. And the thing is, the deacons are not in charge of what's going on here. The pastors are not in charge of what's going on here. We're just attempting to discern what God desires to do through this body. And that's what it's all about. It's not about our own personal agendas. It's not about our own personal preferences. It's all about what do we think God is up to? How will we join him? But not just join him as individuals. Join him as a church to accomplish what he desires to do in and through us. But we must remember, he is calling the shots. He's the one placing us in the body. So the first thing I want us to see in Ephesians chapter 4, which, by the way, is one of my favorite passages. It kind of gives me my sense of purpose when it comes to what God's called me to. But look at verse 11. And he himself, Jesus himself, 
gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, in this passage, Paul lists five kinds of ministers. Some people say it's really four kinds because pastor-teacher goes together. But what he's talking about, these are those that God has gifted the church to basically come alongside of the work in which he desires to do the great work he desires to do in a local church. Now, the first three that are mentioned in this list are what you call itinerant ministers who preached wherever they found an opportunity. They were the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. While the pastor and teacher, or pastor-teacher, were, was attached to some congregation or location. So those were the ones who were assigned to the local church. Now, it's important to look in verse 11 to look at that word gave. In verse 11, he says, God gave them, which means he gave these gifts on the decision of his will, okay? On the decision of his will and not the merit of the recipients. The pastors that I know, the teachers that I know that God has placed to do what he desires him to do never think they're God's gift to the church. And if they do, God bless them. <laughs> no, we have been placed where we are. Not because there's anything great necessarily about us other than the fact that God called us to do what we do. And the fact that we need to understand is the fact that God did give us to the church when it comes to a pastor teacher. But when it comes to understanding fully what he's up to, it includes all of us. It includes all of us. So God's strategy for the accomplishment of his plan of discipleship, his plan of purpose for the church, the thing we got to keep in, in mind is it's not a sporting event where there are those who are professionals considered who go out and do the ministry and we applaud them on. No, it's not a spectator sport. It's not where the professionals are called in. It's the game of life. It's where we all come together for the profit of all to accomplish the purposes of God. So what does that look like? Well, the first nine weeks of this study has been based on you as an individual. You as an individual. You realizing God's at work all around us. You realizing that he wants a personal relationship with you. And you realizing that he has called you to be a part of that work. Much of that work that God is going to do in and through you will come through the church. You say, how do you know that? Because God has chosen the church to accomplish the task and mandate that he's placed for the world. And that's to go tell, to make him known to the world. That the generations, that the, the, all the peoples of the world will come together and glorify him and honor him and come to him for salvation. That's what you have been indirectly, and when we come together, we're directly imposing the mandate of God on the world because that's what he desires us to do. Now, when you begin to look at these gifts, the ones mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, is not the exhausted list. There's other gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 12, there's a list of gifts that are there. They're available to the body of Christ. I personally believe the, the gifts that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12 have been given to us. We all have one of those gifts. But it doesn't end there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's also a list of gifts that are there. The manifestation gifts. And we see those so clearly there. So we've all been given gifts to fulfill the mandate God has given us the church. So, big picture. Christ, Jesus himself, created the mandate. The mandate comes based on his death, burial, and resurrection. God sent his son into the world that the world would not perish, that the world would have eternal life. The purposes of God is to bring reconciliation to the people of this world, to God himself. Jesus was a central figure in that exchange. He was the one that made it possible. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, now you go and tell what God has planned for the world by way of me. That's what he was saying. And that is our mandate. And we can never lose sight of that. And we can never let our, some of our petty differences overcome that mandate that he's placed on us as a local church. He's given that to us. 
So what's the task of the church? What are we to be about? Well, look here. The first one we see here is equipping. Equipping to provide what is needed to be complete. That's literally what the idea means. So in verse 12, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, you could go back to verse 11 and say, okay, they've been given to us to accomplish this purpose. And, and that would be true. But let's face it. We all have been given gifts in which equipping can take place. Equipping, the word also means to mend, repair, and literally the idea to set a bone. To make something right that can once again or once be useful. So the primary tool God provides for the equipping of the saints. If you were to say, okay, where will the healing come from? Where will the equipping come from? Straight from the word of God. Straight from the word of God. Everything that we need as an individual and as a church to follow the heart of God is found in the word of God. This is the mandate. This is what we trust to build our lives upon. This is the target of obedience for us to follow him. So when you continue to look in this, in this verse, it, the word work there literally means occupation. So it's not just a, a work we do. It's not just we show up and we do a work. No, it's more than that. It's a part of the gifting he gives us to use for the effectiveness of the ministry. It's literally what we would call our occupation. So, what could your occupation look like? Well, God's given me the gift of mercy. And I'm here as an occupation to spread mercy. <laughs> I want people to be loved. I want there to be great compassion to those who are outside the faith, even those who are inside the faith that need mercy. Maybe you've been given the gift of, of a prophet. Maybe you're someone that God has given you the ability to discern certain things, see certain things clearly, and you're able to speak into the heart of other people from the mandate of God's word. And God gives you that ability. Guess what? That's your part. That's your occupation in equipping the needs of the local church. He's placed you there for that. Now, think of this. Jesus said this, and I love this about Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's so much talk in our, our society, especially in, in major organizations, and there's this whole idea of servant leadership. And it's amazing how that terminology really didn't show up until the last 20, 25 years. But what's really amazing is that Jesus was the author of, of that kind of servant. He, he was. He was, the, he was the one who was there to serve. Servant leadership. But the word ministry, when you go back to verse 12, the word ministry also implies mission. There is a mission that comes with the whole concept of what God desires us to do in the whole idea of equipping. So, well, the task of the church. First of all, there's equipping. But then there's something we would call edifying, or what the word calls edifying. It means to strengthen by instruction and encouragement. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, look at the second part of verse 12. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Some translations literally read, for the building up of the body of Christ. Edifying and building are both words which imply both progress in the growth. Progress into growth. And it's literally the idea that that is something that should be happening in every one of us. How many of you have had times in your life where you felt like you grew more than other times in your life? And for me, I've had seasons of stagnation. I look sometimes at that and I have to evaluate, say, why, why does it appear, appear to be stagnant in my growth, that kind of thing? And sometimes it's because I'm not focusing on the right things. Sometimes I let something get me sideways about something. And I became obsessed about something. Or maybe we've talked about this recently. Maybe I've been hurt by something. And, and all of a sudden, we kind of take a step back. It rocks our world in such a way that it's almost like we don't know here or there necessarily. And the fact is, God, here's what we got to understand. God is building something not only in us, but through us. Through us. He desires to build something through us. And that's where it it becomes the local church family. It becomes the body of Christ. So, what's next? 
How do we equip and edify? Well, Paul next gives us the target of the church. The target. Look at verse 13. Look, look at that phrase, till we all come. The, the thing that we need to understand is this. Are we included in we all? All of us, listen, are necessary and are, of, are, and are called to focus on the target of what God desires to do by way of mission. He has put us on mission. So really, to get there, to get to that point, we've got to be growing. Growing. And we're going to talk more about what we need to be growing in just a moment. But we must learn. Here's what's key to this. We must learn to count on each other and to encourage each other as we become all that God desires. Now, the phrase come to there in verse 13 literally means to attain, which implies that we are traveling and reaching and will one day reach a desired destination. How many of you, sometimes that's hard to get your mind around, that, that we're all moving towards a destination, that we're all moving towards something. We're not just living our lives in a vacuum. We're not just living our lives in a void. No, God created us. And how did he create us? He created us specifically and purposefully and intentionally. We learned that from Psalms 139, but it doesn't end there. All of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and says, you know, this is the church. This is how I'm going to, this is how God's plan and his mercy and his grace will reach the world just through the local church. So there is not only do we see in Scripture our purpose and the, intentional man, the intentionality in which we are created, but also the mandate that is placed there. So, what does all this mean? Paul gives us four desired destinations, four targets for the church. And the first one, it's right here in the verse, is unity of the faith, oneness. And that idea means we're moving in the same direction. Let me just say this about a lot of churches. They're not all moving in the same direction. And, and, and to be honest with you, that can be a big hindrance. Sometimes it's a distrust that's associated there. Some, sometimes there's, there, there's this whole idea that people have given in to making their preferences mandated throughout the body. But, but the point is, there's not unity and what is he talking about in verse 13? He says, till we all come to the unity of what? Of our preferences? Of the faith. Of the faith. And so what does that mean? The unity of the faith is the shared understanding in the church of the great truths that are revealed in Scripture. It's a unity. It's, and it also is the idea of there's a vision that's placed here that we believe God is called this church, this local church, this church, the Pleasant City Church, to a specific purpose and idea of what he desires to do in and through us. It may be a little different than the church down the road. It, it may. The reach may be different. But the fact is, we're all reaching. You, you see what I'm saying? But as far as the design and specifics, he puts out within the local church. Now, no growth towards wholeness and maturity can occur without the unity of faith. And how does that come about? Through the correct understanding of Christian doctrine. When you look across, especially the church here in America, the church here in America, many people would say, from a progressive point of view, is evolving and is becoming enlightened. I totally disagree. I totally disagree. The church we see here in America is becoming more and more deceived. Because you know why? They don't have correct doctrine. They're, they're, they're caving to the world. It's, it's, it's something very interesting that, that we began to look at 20 years ago as church leadership. We began to look, and, and not that we would change to necessarily be like the culture, but we would be adaptable to be able to reach the culture. We never want to conform to the culture. We never want to do that. But we do want to adapt in such a way to reach the culture. And that's a big difference. And so really when you think about it, the key, how do we keep who we are but we adapt? The unity of the faith. 
The central truths become central truths. They become who we believe and what we believe about Christ and what he says about ourselves. So really, when you think about it, what's the target of the church? That we come together in the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound harsh. But there's a lot of churches out there battling for the unity of the faith. There's a lot of churches out there There's denominations who are divided about what the unity of the faith looks like. And to me, it's clear. It's God's Word. It's God's Word. What does it say? Not what the culture is now accepting, but what does God's Word say? Anything apart from God's Word and His truth, listen, becomes deception in and of itself. And that's where the world is. And that's what we're finding. And here's what's so sad. You have these poor people who are already in deception themselves, and our hearts should go out to that. We should have great compassion for that. But then you've got the world coming along, them and their deception, and, and they're basically keeping them in their deception by affirming it. Let me tell you the worst thing. Not just the culture doing it. The church is now moving in there affirming it, adding to their deception. That is where we are today. And that's a sad commentary of what we tend to be reading here in Ephesians chapter 4. A second target of our church, and this is really more of what I'm just talking about, the knowledge of the Son of God. Accurate truth. Isn't it amazing how everyone wants to redefine who Jesus is? Have you noticed that's the terminology that's going on in the world? How do I know who Jesus is? The Bible literally says he was the word. That means you can't separate the word from who he is. He is the word. The word is he. You can't separate the two. And so when you go in here and you're picking and choosing and saying, well, that just doesn't look quite right to me. Guess what? You're in dangerous territory. You're in very dangerous territory. And the fact is, when you begin to try to modify this, you're modifying your view of Jesus, which is never a good thing. Never a good thing. He is who he is. So, so literally, what does it say in verse 13? And the knowledge of the Son of God. That means twofold. Having an accurate view of who Jesus is and a deeper, more intimate experience experiential knowledge of who Jesus is. It's not just knowing who he is. It's experiencing him in who he is. You see what I'm talking about? And it's really the gist of the whole study we've been doing. Thirdly, a third target of the church, perfect man or perfect person, I guess you could say. But again, none of us are perfect, right? So what's, what's the terminology really trying to tell us here? Maturing faith. Not lacking, not lacking, maturing faith. Look at, look at verse uh, 13 again, the last part, to a perfect man. It's literally the idea of moving to maturity. Based on what's been said before, if we're moving to maturity, where are we moving towards maturity in? In our view, in our view of who God is, in our understanding of who God is, in our understanding of God's plan for us, in our surrender to God. That's literally what we're doing. As we grow in Christ, as we mature in the faith, and we're coming to the unity of faith, you know what the key word there is that gets us there? Surrender. Surrender. I'm surrendering to what the will and way of God is. So, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at the knowledge of the truth of the Son of God. That's accurate truth. The perfect man is a maturing faith that's not lacking. When we put these together, we have the most important work we need to be doing in the the whole world, really, when you think about it. It's to bring people to an accurate view of truth. An accurate view of truth. Let me ask you a question. Do your children and grandchildren need to have an accurate view of truth? Absolutely. They need that. But not only an accurate view of truth, they need to be moving and growing in that truth. There's a lot, listen, I've met some amazing, 
I, I was talking to a, a group of uh, seventh grade boys this past week. And I was sitting there, and there were six of them. We were sitting there, and we had a little Bible study, and, and we were talking about different things. And all of a sudden, uh, I asked for an example of something. This kid sitting directly to my left, it's funny, the rest of them had their Bibles. He didn't have his Bible, and I'm sitting there thinking, didn't even bring your Bible. You know, I'm sitting there thinking that. Well, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and I said, can someone think of an example of this? The kid sitting beside me without his Bible quoted half of Matthew chapter 7 to me. And I'm sitting there like, okay, well, maybe you don't need a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, it goes even further than that when you think about it. It's not just knowing the truth. It's maturing and growing in the truth. That's where discipleship takes place. That's where we all need to be. And that's the target of the church, to not only bring an accurate view of Scripture or an accurate view of truth, but to bring people along in that truth. Next, the last target of, of, of discipleship or where we're trying to head, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that literally means complete, fully grown, fully grown. Look at the, I'm sorry, the latter part of verse 13. Here it is. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's the idea of complete conformity to the image of Christ. Howard Hendricks, if you've ever read anything about him, he's very practical. I like the way he puts things. He's a great Bible teacher. Here's what he said. The Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity, but to make you conform to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. That's the key. That's the key. So the body of Christ is to radiate the beauty of Christ to a spiritually dead world by walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So what are the targets? Let's review them real quickly. Look on your outline. Unity of the faith. That's oneness, that's the idea of us moving in the same direction. The knowledge of the Son of God, that's presenting accurate truth. Perfect man, that means maturing faith, not lacking. To the measure, the stature of the fullness of God, that's complete and fully grown. Now, let me say that. If we are the body of Christ and he is the head, everything that's true will fall from the head. And by the way, how do we know the heart and mind of the head? Through the word. Through the word. This is key when it comes to us growing in him as, as the church. So, so then the testimony of the church. So it really leads to this. Follows correct doctrine. Look at verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about every wind of doctrine. The the passage literally means someone who's been thrown into confusion. Now, y'all, we live in a very confusing time, don't we? How many of you, um, (laughs) now some of you are really good at this. Maybe you're more discerning. God's given you a great ability to discern. But how many of you have heard of one side of an argument before and sat there and thought, man, that's that's a great point. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing your point. And then someone comes up and gives a complete opposite of that opinion. And you're sitting there, you know, something that brings some very valid points. That's a great point. I mean, have you been there? I mean, am I the only one living in this thinking, well, who do you believe? (laughs) And so many times in the world, and let me just say this. I think, I personally believe, this is Brian's idea of looking at something. I think we're more biblically illiterate as a nation now than we've ever been. I really do. And the confusion goes here, and then it goes here, and it's modified by this culture. We don't take that the fact that the enemy's behind it all, organizing this great work of deception. We, we kind of throw him out. We don't, and, and then before you know it, we're wondering, how can the world be so wrong right now? It's because of that. We don't know. Culture is moving us to different truths. How many of you have heard people say, well, my truth, well, honey, your truth don't mean anything. That's, I mean, I hate to say it. I don't mean to be funny. I should have greater compassion, but I'm so sick of hearing my truth. 
I want to hear God's word says. But the culture is moving to various types of truths. There now is no longer a standard barrier of truth in our culture. But the church, we've got to remain the standard barrier of truth. We can't go over here and say, well, since the world's moving in this direction, it's accepting of all this, maybe we need to move with them. No, that's conforming. And we're told not to conform to this world, right? Then it says, carried about. It literally means to move from one place to another. How many of you have ever, um, <laughs> my office is over here and occasionally uh, a plastic bag. How many of you love to watch a plastic bag blow in the wind? I am amazed by that. I really am. It doesn't take much for me to be amazed. But sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm looking out the window and there's the playground and the kids sometimes are playing. All of a sudden this plastic bag will shoot up in the air. And I'll sit there. I mean, I'll stand up and like, Look at that, man. It's gone here, and it's gone here, and it's gone here. And then sometimes it will hit the ground like, oh, man, it's over. (laughs) That's the way people are with their versions of truth. It's here, it's there, it's up, it's down. The Bible talks about the foolish man building his house on what? Sinking sand. And that's what the truth of the world is right now. It's sinking. So what is good doctrine? It is truth about God and what he says about you. That's really what it comes down to. Something you can build your life upon. Next, the testimony of the church needs to not be easily and comfortably deceived. We got to wake up. We got to teach the word of God. Everywhere, in our connect groups, uh, uh, when we're talking one-on-one with one another, when there's people who are looking for counsel, the counsel we need to bring is from the truth of God's Word. But not this. Look at verse 14, the second part. By the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Trickery of men. You know what that literally means? To intentionally fraud or sleight of hand in a spiritual sense. Do you realize, and you may say, well, you're just one in conspiracy theorists. No, I don't think so. I'm just going to tell you. I think I see it. I think it's clear. Did you know the enemy has a whole process in which and structure that he's building and has built to deceive the world? Did you know that? A lot of our institutions in our country are built, solely built around deception. Solely built. That's what they teach. That's what they're about. That's what they're trying to gain. That's the goal. Now, you could say, really? They're doing that? No, some, some of them, I believe, are just oblivious to what their life's about with them spreading the deception. That's the reason the enemy is clever. He knows how. To build the structures and the processes and and bring people into those structures in which way they become the gospel of those who basically are in deception. And that just just as Christ, listen, I believe this with all my heart. How many of you know the enemy copies everything God does? I'm convinced that just as God places people in the local church to accomplish his purpose and his will, the enemy does the same thing in the institutions and organizations of our world. It works for God. Why why shouldn't he take it a whole different way? The testimony of the church confronts with truth. Verse 15, but speaking the truth how? In love. The church many times doesn't do that well. We got to speak the truth in love. When, when, when we don't speak, listen, this is so vital. Please understand, parents, listen to this. Grandparents, listen to this. When we don't speak truth in love, we're adding to the deception of others. We're adding to the deception sometimes of those that we love the most. If we don't get out there, And speak the truth how? In love. In love. 
we got to continue to speak the truth. The testimony of the church. Look at what we have. Expects individual responsibility. Here's what the church should expect of you. This is what we see that Paul's saying. Grows within the church. That you grow within the church. Look at verse 15. May grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. You know what that literally means? That we're coming together as one. Individuals coming together as one. We're growing within the church to the point that we begin to live his reality and not our own. Uh, do you hear what I'm saying? His reality and not one that we may receive from our own inner desires or the desires that the world says we should have. We're living in the reality of who Christ is. That's what it means when he's the head. We're living in that reality. Next, expects individual responsibility, connects within the church. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies. Isn't that kind of an interesting way of looking at us? We look around, and you can look around right now. It's okay, look around. I mean, there's some very interesting people in this room. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm from this point of view. The Bible literally says we're all interconnected. What are we interconnected by? The truth and love of God in a world that's walking away from both. But guess what? We're connected by it. We're connected by that. Now, what it means there, here's what it literally means. In verse 16, this first part, here's what it literally means. Intentional placement and connectedness, and it implies intimacy. That we, because we're interconnected, there's an intimacy that builds within us. That we are the body of Christ. That if no one stands out beyond us for what is right, what is true, we will stand for truth. That's literally the whole idea. That we will be that person. And the present tense here, this verse 16 is in the present tense. It means continual. It's continued. Continued. It's continued on and on. Next, expects individual responsibility. Serves within the church. Look at verse 16, the second part. According to the effective working by which every part does its share. That's the giftings. Okay, he placed you here. He gifted you. We're going to do our work together. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It implies every part is needed and necessary. Every part. Needed and necessary. I want you to tell yourself this. I'm needed and necessary. That's what this is saying. In the body of Christ. In the body of Christ. So here's the application. Are you connected to a church where you can grow and serve with other followers of Jesus while experiencing God. That's, that's what we're here for. Individually, we're called here to experience God. Corporately, we're called together here to experience God together. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is. And then this. What do you think? Why do you think God has placed you into your present church body. There may be someone here today that you're not a part of this body, but you are a part of the body, back home or down the street or whatever. We all need to ask ourselves, why have we been planted here? And the answer comes by what our part is to do in the work of Jesus Christ in the body that we can all experience God together. We are needed and we are necessary. That's the picture we get here. I want to give you an assignment, okay? Here's the assignment. Write this down. I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Okay? If you want a little more extensive view of this. Some of you already know what it says. I want you to read that. It's a great little read here. The word body, implying the body of Christ, is mentioned 18 times in these 16 verses. And it tells you and shows you how we are to interact, how we are to interact. And I hope you'll, you'll do that. And I hope you'll pray 
about where God would have you, okay? Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. And we, we know that uh, what we've read here, when it happens, is supernatural. Because, Father, there's so many of us. We, we, we at times will fall into the flesh. There's times in which we fail this whole process. But, Lord, I thank you that, that we can build a body of believers in such a way that we can still love one another, have unity in one another, even when we disagree at times, that we can agree together about the whole purpose of what you're trying to do here. And, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you'll just grow us uh, where we're more interconnected with one another. Father, I thank you that you brought me here to this church over 30 years ago. Father, I thank you that you allowed me to serve in this church, that you surrounded me with the people that I needed in my life to, 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 to do what you called me to do. And Father, I just pray that all of us would find that purpose, Lord, in what you've called us to do. Lord, this is a work that you've instilled in, in us. For some of people in this room, for me, it's been a little over 30 years. For others, they've been here 40, 50 years, maybe 60 years. And they still continue to faithfully serve in your body here. Father, I just pray that each of us would carefully look through evaluation as to what you're calling us to do. And to join you, Father, not only in the context of us as individuals, but we would join you in what you're doing in and through your local church, the church we call Pleasant City Church. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Some of you have noticed I finished early. You're not going anywhere yet, but anyway. I want to share something with you um, uh, that needs your attention. And it has to do with some things that we as the pastors, we've been praying about this for some years now. Uh, several years ago, uh, we knew we needed another pastor to come on staff, and we were praying as to what that would look like, and what it came down to was uh, Gary Marburger, who is our associate pastor, he oversees care and small groups. Now, can you imagine, as big as we've gotten, how much of a workload that may be? <laughs> it's almost overwhelming when you think about it. So what we suddenly realized is we need to do something. And so the, what we thought God was leading us to do, now this was three years ago, was to find a, a what we call a small group leader. Let Gary continue with the care, which he's so effective with, and let someone come and kind of lead our small groups. Well, we got to looking, and, and COVID hit, and that was the wrong time to do anything, to make a hire. It was just the wrong time. Then last year, we wanted to, to bring it before the church, and guess what? We started running out of room. And, and so what we thought is we need to build the structure, we need to absorb what all that means, and then possibly bring up the next hire, okay? And that's kind of where we are today. We think we're ready to pull the trigger on that. However, over the last nine months, we really feel God is changing our, the direction of what that may look like. Do we still need someone to overlook small groups? Absolutely. That's the key to discipleship in our church. It's the key to moving forward, to becoming more healthy. It's through our small groups, okay? That is the key. We know that, all right? So, we, again, we thought that years ago we would be making what was called a proactive hire. A proactive hire is when a church hires someone and the need has not revealed itself. I mean, it's not fully realized what it can all be. And so you hired a person, and you're being proactive in it, and then they bring the growth that's necessary. That's a proactive hire. We've done some of those hires over the years. But what we're dealing with right now is a reactive hire because we've grown so much recently. And so we've missed the part of being proactive. Now we're trying to react to what the need is. Does that make sense? Okay. And so basically... Currently, we have six pastors, and a healthy ratio is for a pastor to minister to around 100 people in attendance, in attendance, okay? Well, if you go back, when we were originally looking at that, we were looking at, we were averaging about 675 in worship or in, in our gathering, our attendance. Right now, we're averaging just over 825, and that's a tremendous amount of growth, okay? So we need to hire. We need to make a hire. So in the meantime, we've been praying about this. What does it look like? How's it going to fit? How will we position ourselves going forward? 
And here's what we think is the best solution. First of all, we are going to update our Connect Pastor Jobs Group. So pull this up. So this is a staff restructuring in some ways, okay? And so we have a pastor job description, okay, a Connect Pastor Job Description for small groups. What it will entail is that Gary Marburger will share this part of the responsibility of the church with Jonathan Glisson, okay? So basically, Gary will still have his hand in small groups, but Jonathan will join him in that. Now, where did we discover how effective this was? It's been through our studies we've been doing each year and then working together, and we think we found a real connection. We think we found a marriage that's really going to work between these two guys, okay? All right? They're so different from one another, but anyway. So, so what will they do? This is it in a nutshell. Manage assimilation. Okay, that's important. Assimilation is bringing people in from the first visitor here. And the goal is not to have them sit comfortably in here. I hate to pick on you if that's what you're doing. We want you in a small group, and we want you serving the body. And so they're going to be doing that. We're going to redo the, some membership. We're going to develop a membership covenant. We're going to man, they're going to manage connect groups and venture into off-campus groups and then manage, uh, manage the greeter and coffee ministries. To some of y'all, that's very important. But anyway... That's what that will be doing. Now, what this means is that Jonathan will have to give up something he's currently doing. Jonathan has a, a big part of the tech side of our church. He does some of the tech stuff, the website, the calendar, the, all those other things, okay? So he is going to, that will be taken off of his job description so he can move smoothly into helping in this situation, okay? Now, that means we need what is called a creative arts pastor. Now, you see Christian Harmon's name up there. Christian currently serves as our student pastor. Now, let me tell you, first of all, why it's important that this be hired. If you were to tell me 20 years ago we're going to need a creature like this, I'd have said, what? What is that all about? You know? But the way social media is, the way the church now deals with its community and the outside people, it's become a big, big deal. Okay? All right, so... Here's what they will do, this, this, this person. Now, right now, we have three people, three pastors doing some of this, this job description. Matter of fact, some of the people who work directly under them, sometimes they don't know which one they need to go see about a certain matter. Does that make sense? Well, do I see Jonathan, do I see Wes, or do I see Christian? All three of them carry the weight of this job description, okay? So basically, they will handle all media stuff, web, uh, you, you notice how stuff there, uh, live stream, social media, photo, video, whatever. Handles the overall church calendar and keeps up with all pastors updated on everything. Handles all the major events that the, the uh, involve, those words are big, that involve production, uh, all in marriage, VBS, Unite, which is a student get together, uh, Easter, Christmas, off campus worship, beach house, whatever. Handle Sunday worship, order, tech, and team with worship leader for each Sunday. So basically, it's very tech-driven what this position is, okay? We feel that Christian, of all the pastors, has the right skill set to do this. And he's proved to us over the COVID. When it was time to set up all that we had to set up so you could watch us at home or whatever, guess what? He didn't know how to do it either. But he's resourceful enough to figure it out, and he's able to, to put it all together. He does a really good job with that. So, Christian, this was not easy for him. When he was told of this restructuring, he really struggled between student ministry, which he loves, and this new challenge that he would be facing. One of the concerns he had is that he, this is so tech-driven that he didn't want to lose the, the pastoral part of what he was called to do. So it will be a challenge for us going forward, but we're, we, our desire is to make sure he still develops as a pastor and as someone who teaches, okay? So that's our goal. We want him to continue that. We feel like for the sake of the future of the church, that's a very necessary thing we got to keep in mind. So he would be moving more to this position. So what does that mean? What would the hire be? You probably can figure it out. A student pastor hire. That's what we're going to be looking for soon. So they would handle all student and college ministries and re, uh, responsibilities, 
And there will be a job description that will be updated from the one he currently has. And you know why? Because the ministry has grown by 30%. And that is, it, it's become a different creature. Okay? Now, again, please understand, this is not an easy thing for Christian. He loves those students. He imagined working with them for nine years like I did, Jonathan did, Neil did. We all had nine years and we were out of there. He's in his sixth year. He's not going to quite make it based on the restructuring. But we feel to position ourselves the most effective way is to move in this direction. Okay? Now, let me tell you this. When we put all this together, search committee will be put together in January. The earliest this hire could be uh, taken by the 2023 budget is April 1st. So there's not a big hurry here. The earliest it can happen is April 1st. It may take longer. We want to find the person God has for the position. It may take a little longer, but the earliest we can begin this position is April 1st. So what does all this mean? The deacons have voted unanimously to move forward with the restructuring and determined it would be tied to the vote of the 2023 budget. Because all that is in the budget. How do you pay for all this? It's in the budget. Okay? So, if you want a budget, we're going to be voting on it on December 4th. You can pick one up at the desk here or the one out in the hallway there. Okay? There's a budget there. Now, the vote for the, the, the budget and the restructuring, I guess, if you could put it all together, will be December 4th. The Q&A on the budget and the restructuring will be this Wednesday at 545 right here in this room. So if you have any questions about what that may look like, we're going to be right here in the room, okay? 545 this Wednesday. We'll be happy to answer your questions, okay? All right, how many of you, did I, was I clear? Was I fairly clear? Okay, I want you to pray about this, okay? Because this is something we really feel. This wasn't something willy-nilly. This is something that's taken a lot of prayer, a lot of conversation, a lot of talk. Christian's heart is he's looking forward to the new challenges, but... It's not going to be easy leaving our students. They're great people to work with. And by the way, he's told them this uh, over there in the warehouse this morning. So y'all pray for the students, too, as to how this may shake out. You know, it can be tough. All right? Y'all, thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed. Thank you. <clears throat>